Hey guys, Dalton here. Just wanted to check in with you before we hop into this episode of the PT Coffee Cast. And first off, thank you for tuning in. The support on the week-to-week basis means the world to us. Whether it's a DM, a comment, a download of an ebook, a joining of our newsletter, we appreciate every bit of support that you guys have given us. And it truly does motivate us to continue to try to put out the best content possible for you. If you guys don't know, we have partnered with Physio Network, and Physio Network is a company that's on a mission to improve physiotherapy standards worldwide. One of the ways they do this is through their monthly research reviews. You will get 12 research reviews in both written and audio form. Articles are selected and appraised by industry experts such as Tom Goom, Mary O'Keefe, Teddy Wilsey, Sam Spinelli, Dr. Jared Hall, Tom Walters, and many, many more. They are clinically relevant and recently published, and they take less than five minutes to read one review, saving you hours of work. They also provide you with a link to the full article if you want to dive a little bit deeper. You get access to members-only Facebook group. You have the opportunity to collect continuing education points through quizzes. They have it all, and they solve the biggest problem that a lot of us struggle with, and that is staying up to date with the research. If you guys are interested in joining Physio Network, we have a seven-day free trial available for you. You can click the link in our show notes or our bio on Instagram to get access to that seven-day free trial. Try it out, see how you like it, join, and get your knowledge on. For today's episode, we have Dr. Nicholas Rolnick on the podcast. He is also known as the human performance mechanic on Instagram. He's the founder of the Blood Flow Restriction Training Pros, and he has a passion for this topic. It is evident in the way that he speaks in this podcast. I'm giving you a little context into who he is because we just dive right into this one. Nick is on a mission of making the world a better place by helping people get back to the activities they love as quickly as possible and experience the joy of pain-free movement through evidence-based therapies like blood flow restriction. He teaches blood flow restriction workshops all across the world, including places like France, Switzerland, Belgium, Italy, and many other areas. We dive into this topic pretty deep. Um, We touch on what blood flow restriction training is, how it's applied, why you use it, who you would use it for, and much more. This episode goes about an hour long and it is full of knowledge. Because it went on for some time, we also have offered a shorter summary version that's about 16 minutes in length that you guys can also listen to where it kind of summarizes the main key points that Nick gets across in the podcast, but I do highly recommend checking out the full episode because we talk about many important things about blood flow restriction training from a clinical perspective, and I think it is very important for us as a profession to realize the power of this modality. So I'm going to stop talking now, go grab your cups, brew an extra large cup for this one, and enjoy episode 102 of the PT Coffee Cast. Welcome to the Movement PT Coffee Cast, where we sit down and talk about physical therapy, health, and whatever else comes to mind during our coffee-infused conversations. I also played baseball at college. So I was curious mm-hmm. when I saw your, I was reading through your bio, saw you played baseball. Which position uh, did you play? Uh, I was a designated hitter, outfielder. So. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I was like, <laughs> I was trying to guess 
just based off of like you, I'm like, I think he was probably an outfielder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I came into college as a, as a, as a catcher and uh, it just wasn't, wasn't the right fit for, for collegiate uh, performance. And so the coach wanted to move me to the outfield because that's where uh, I would have the best chance of playing. So I moved to the outfield and yeah, it was, uh, it was fun. I, I, I will, I will tell you though, like I had a great junior year where I finished you know, all league and we're, our team was really good. And my life in general has been of the philosophy where the harder, the, the, the harder you, you work towards a goal, the harder, the more work you put in, the more diligent you are at your craft the better the results that you're going to get. And I can tell you that the one example in my entire life where this was not true was my senior year of college in baseball. Um, I had an abysmal year. Um, I went from my junior year being all league and really being a, a, a four or five hitter on my team. And I was like, you know what I want to do this year. I'm going to start, I'm going to really hit the weightlifting gym. I'm going to really like, you know, swing on the off season, do my, you know, do my thing. And it was just, it was literally the one time in my life where I can honestly say I did everything I possibly could to succeed. And I just failed and I had an awful senior season and what ended up happening, my other guys, had a awful season and the team just tanked and it was awful. It was just a terrible, terrible way to end college. And so I've, I've had a, a grudge against baseball um, for a while. When I tell you I haven't swung a baseball bat since I graduated college. So it's been 10 years um, that I haven't swung a baseball bat because I've just been so just like, you know, it's, it's just been one of those things where it's like, wow. And, um, and yeah. And, and, and coincidentally, just, just because I play baseball all throughout my life, my, my left side is so antiverted my hip. So I have like 60 to 65 degrees of hip IR, um, which just completely stresses my entire left lower extremity. So all my injuries, every single one of them on my legs, it's always on my left side. I have never had a right-sided injury in my life, minus some shin splints that I've had because, you know, just just a running load and all that stuff in college and not doing it as, as best as I could. Everything is on my left side. So it's just a constant reminder of the baseball that just, just it, it really is one of those things where I'm just like, God, man. So, yeah, so that's that was just one of those things. I was like, oh. But yeah, at some point I want to hit a baseball again, just, just to see, um, I'm a little bit bigger than I was in college. So it'd be interesting to see if I still got it at <laughs> least from a 70 mile an hour, you know, yeah. pitch. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's hilarious stuff. <laughs> it just brings up like how frustrating baseball can be. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's, it's like, a it's one of the most rewarding feelings when you can hit, when you hit a ball just right. And it feels like air, like you're swinging through it and you just connect and it boom and it just goes. And it, it really is one of the most satisfying feelings that I've ever 
experienced in my life, which is just, you can't replicate it. I guess maybe it's like hitting a, a three pointer swoosh in, in, you know, in, uh, in basketball. But I mean, again, it's just, it's a different type of feeling because it's just something that goes through your body that is just so fluid. It's just all of the force. It's just, it's like equal. It's just, it's just a, it's just, it's just a great feeling. So, um, and that's, and that's funny because, you know, that same type of feeling that like feeling of like, Oh wow, something good is happening. I did it is like kind of like analogous to, to BFR and what the pump is, you know, and we say, you know, hashtag chase the pump. We know that good things are happening when we, when we have a, a or we get a pump, especially in the rehab setting. Um, because it's so difficult to actually facilitate increases in in muscle mass and muscle strength. And it's important not from an aesthetic perspective, because obviously everyone wants to look good when, you know, when you have muscle mass, except for, you know, those those savage bodybuilders that can't even get through a door, right? I'm not talking about that kind of of, of level of muscle mass, but we know that muscle mass is is a very important serves a very important role and has been correlated to um, our ability to have a higher quality of life and all of these other positive adaptations that can uh, exist with more muscle mass and it just so happens that muscle is one of those tissues much like a lot of the tissues in our body bone you know ten all these other t- all these other tissues if you don't use it you lose it. So it's when we have an injury now, it's we're in this predicament of how can we try to retain all these, this muscle that we've that we have, because a lot of people don't even have that much muscle to begin with, right? Our society, at least in America, in the US, 60 to 70% of individuals are obese or overweight. So they're already, we're already working against this, this, this chronic low level inflammation that exists within the body. And recently in the last 10, 15 years, we've understood now that muscles play this role of, of, of inflammation monitoring. Basically, it can help modulate the amount of systemic inflammation that we have. And obviously, pro-inflammation in, in the early stages of, of lifting is a, is a beneficial way that we can facilitate accretions in muscle mass. But chronically, the muscles you can 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 release myokines, which are these hormones that can act locally in the muscle, around the muscle tissue, and systemically. And so if we lose that muscle, now we lose some of that anti-inflammation uh, or our ability to, to fight inflammation. And that's just, again, creating this, this downward uh, spiral that, that really contributes to what we call anabolic resistance, which is that our body ends up not being responsive to the same degree of beneficial uh, uh, beneficial nutrition and weightlifting and so we have an injury and this these changes can occur pretty rapidly you know within within two weeks of of now all of a sudden this whole this whole scenario of oh we got to rest we got to really rest in order to facilitate, you know, the tissue healing. And we're learning that that's actually probably not a good thing. And it sets ourselves up for a challenging recovery. So that's where BFR can kind of come in and, and, and play that role. So I've been very fortunate to, uh, to, to be in a position where, um, where BFR continues to grow. It's just about to reach mainstream. I mean, Forbes magazine just last year declared it the hottest trend in fitness. And I'm going to add in quotations and rehab 
based on all this amazing anecdotal uh, uh, stories that have been that have been taught or or, or, or or been dispersed through the last 50 plus years because it BFR was around it got invented actually in 1966 by Dr. Yo- well, at, at, the, at the time he wasn't a doctor, but uh, by Yoshiaki Sato, who was um, basically praying in, in, in a Buddhist church and found that the position of knee uh, of him on his knees created this self swelling effect similar to what would occur in weightlifting and him being a crazy teen, right? And a bodybuilder, um, your bodybuilders want to do every, everything for gains. Okay. Everything. I mean, if you go on the Reddit and you look for, for bodybuilding, increasing muscle size, you're going to see some crazy, crazy stuff. But he decided, Oh, whoa, you know what? Let me tie a tourniquet or a band around my leg. And then he started to exercise again and started, Oh man, wow. This is like really replicating that feeling. And that was literally the birth of Katsu training or Katsu meaning added pressure training. And he actually went through a lot of time experimenting on this, this approach by himself before it really started to reach mainstream, at least open to training in the early 2000s. There had been research on ischemic training back in in the seventies, you know, really even earlier uh, in some of these, in some of these research papers, but really ischemic training in looking at the adaptations uh, both acutely and chronically that, ischemic ischemic application can give on a musculoskeletal level cardiovascular level um, has been well researched and basically the way that bfr has reached where it's at right now is through one of the pioneers johnny owens um, who has been working with the military and basically seeing that listen like the military has been using bfr for limb salvage for a while, seeing that, understanding that the, the benefits of hypoxia can preserve muscle mass. And, and so Johnny went and said, hey, listen, can we make this into a, a, a training methodology? And that's where, you know, his company kind of ha, have, has been birthed. And, you know, he's contributed, he's been a pioneer, contributing to the research base, all things that I truly value, because everyone's getting into BFR right now. So everyone is like, oh, I know about BFR. I boom, boom, boom. But how many people have actually really contributed to furthering our understanding of the literature base? And so I commend Johnny for that, uh, because he's done a, a really good job of practicing what he preaches, which is, you know, not just being somebody who's saying, hey, listen, um, BFR is beneficial. Obviously, he has a company. We often, you know, we make money. Like he, he makes money selling his devices, which again is fine, right? Whatever. But at least he's put his money where his mouth is and is contributing to the research base. I mean, just recently he was published on, uh, on a systematic review uh, and meta-analysis on aerobic training. Um, and, and the benefits of BFR with aerobic training on, on cardiovascular capacity. So, yeah, I mean, so that, so Johnny helped with that. And then as more of the professional sports teams now got wind of it and looking at, Oh, wait a second. So you're saying that we can use light load training because with BFR, and again, I guess we just hopped right into it. So we didn't really yeah. give a, a, a background on, on BFR, but I'll, for those that are, for that are, I guess going like, to around yeah. it. I'm just curious, like, it's, it's interesting to hear the, the past, like, where, like, it's been going on for in some way, shape or mm-hmm. form for, for a long time. Um, 
I'm curious. I want to hear maybe how you came upon it and why you got so passionate about it. And then maybe you can dive into like just giving that overview of what blood flow restriction like training looks like to give some context to the, to the listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've, I've always been into health and fitness. Um, you know, I've, I've been exercising for almost what, so I'm going to be 32 in two weeks. Oh gosh. Um, so I've been exercising pretty, pretty, pretty heavily for since I was 16, 17 years old. And so health and fitness has always been a large part of my life. And, um, I, I wanted to at least, I'm always interested again, bodybuilding, always interested in looking at newest and greatest, latest and greatest. And so as a second year, really early second year PT student, which was about five ish years ago, I came across some articles on blood flow restriction and started reading about it and saying, Hey, no, this, this looks okay. Um, this looks like it could be something. And then, you know, I was reading a little bit about it. And then I ultimately saw the segment with Stefania Bell with Dwight Howard and the RS device. And that really set set in motion how I then started to pursue BFR because um, I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's how you can really do it in a, in a, in a very um, strategic and safe manner. Because right now, a lot of the research that's been done, you don't really know how much restriction you're going to be doing. And that's a limitation in some of the methodology. Um, but, but now with some of these, these devices, okay, now we know exactly kind of how much we're doing. And that allowed it to then be uh, able to be integrated into other settings besides just, you know, sports performance and, and, and such, because sports, the people that are using it at least before are very generally healthy, but in order for it to transition into rehab, we need to have a little bit more of a, um, safety, uh, emphasis on it. And so uh, me being a very type A personality, um, if I find it's funny cause you, you take a step back and, and I was, I guess, diagnosed with ADHD, uh, as a kid and with ADHD, basically it's, it's, you have a tension span of a gnat, um, except for in the situations where you generally have interest in something. And when you have interest in something, it, it, it kind of goes away. And so I found myself reading some of these papers, these early papers, these Katsu papers and reading some of the, some of the pioneering work by Dr. Lenicky in, uh, at the university of Mississippi is also at Oklahoma. Um, and, and being like, wow, getting really excited. And I just dove right in and, uh, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers, um, uh, read on the topic and believe it or not, when you, when you learn some of this stuff, you, you actually, even though it's, it's in exercise, and strength and conditioning and, you know, rehab, you actually have to dive into a lot of other different subtopics like cardiovascular responses, electrophysiology, neurodynamic, all of these different topics, because that allows you to have an appreciation for actually what's going on when you apply the, the, the cuff to, to a limb and you, and you work with comorbidities and what happens, what happens to the cardiovascular and hemodynamics of somebody that has obesity? What about diabetes? What about hypertension? What are things going on? So basically just literally opened up the floodgates to all of this new information that I needed to absorb. And I, and I really love doing it because ultimately my goal 
um, as the human performance mechanic, um, which is my outpatient uh, physical therapy clinic, um, is to is to help make the world a, a better and happier place to live by getting people back to the activities that they love as quickly as possible. And I found that BFR has been one of those therapies that is that is allowing me to do that faster than traditional therapies. So it's 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 really just a blessing that I get to now go out and talk about BFR and teach other clinicians around the world how to use this safely in in, in practice. And so the BFR Pros is an extension of my beliefs to help again shape the world, make this world a healthier and happier place to be because the world is a pretty crazy place right now. Um, <laughs> I mean, so if we can make people happier and be uh, more excited about their life, um, then that's a win. And I think BFR is a tremendous tool when used appropriately with the right person can really change their life. And that's what I've been seeing in my practice. And that's what other clinicians and other practitioners across the world have been seeing with BFR. And so for those that, that, that are like, okay, we were talking about BFR. What is BFR? <laughs> um, BFR is 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 using a cuff that's calibrated by some sort of technology, whether it's by a computer, whether it's by a, a manual, like a um, like using a Doppler ultrasound. Which basically, in the end of the day, all this technology is looking to do is you're looking to train or strength train or apply it with or without exercise at very low intensities, like 20 to 40, even 50 percent of your one repetition maximum. And you can gain similar benefits in muscle mass and strength and cardiovascular capacity as higher intensity exercise. And how does that happen? Well, this cuff that we apply to the proximal part of the arm or the leg <clears throat> reduces blood flow in a very controlled manner. And as a result of this reduction in blood flow, we have an increase in muscle oxygen demand because oxygen in a general sense, right? Conceptually, if we reduce blood flow, well, we're going to reduce the amount of oxygen that's going to be delivered to that limb. <clears throat> As a result of that, we now have the muscle that has to work harder to generate a contraction. I mean, initially, right? Like we're not getting enough blood flow. We need blood flow for exercise performance. So now these muscle fibers, these type one and type two muscle fibers that compose our muscle tissue, <clears throat> these type one fibers, which are very aerobic, they utilize oxygen to be able to contract that under normal loads, like light loads that typical of what we do in rehab, these are the muscle fibers that are going to be contributing to production of force. We don't necessarily ever tap into those type two fibers. These are the these are anaerobic fibers, meaning that they don't rely on oxygen. And thus these fibers are more important for hypertrophy, strength, as well as sports performance. So when we have athletes that are rehabbing and we can't really stimulate these type two fibers, which also are the fibers that tend to atrophy quick, especially in the anti-gravity muscles, like the quadriceps, like the calves, like the glutes. These are the muscle, these are the muscle fibers that we really need to stimulate in rehab. They quickly atrophy. 
So we need to find a solution to be able to, to, to hit them in rehab. Well, with BFR now, because of the lack of oxygen, these type one fibers now can't support the exercise performance. And thus we get earlier recruitment of these type two muscle fibers in situations where we wouldn't normally recruit these muscle fibers. So we get type two muscle fiber hypertrophy, which can help us increase our muscle mass and strength while in the early to mid phases of rehab. So it's really exciting because now we're seeing that with the BFR, a lot of these different populations that we thought wouldn't necessarily be able to uh, benefit from uh, strength training uh, for contraindications medically, for example, uh, or for example, post-surgically where you can't really do anything. Um, even the application of the cuff alone with applying some degree of pressure has been shown to attenuate some of the muscle loss that we would get from doing nothing. So BFR is allowing us to accelerate the performance and recovery of our patients during the rehabilitation process. And we're allow it's, it's doing that in less time because we're now being able to challenge our muscles from a very early point in the rehabilitation process and allowing us in those individuals that are able to lift heavy, for example, like an ACL rehab, right? Those, those individuals tend to be more active and younger. And so those individuals are going to likely try to return to sport. So we can use a, a BFR early on in the rehab process to prevent that quadriceps atrophy because we know limb symmetry index uh, is a huge acute and chronic problem in this population and then get them to uh, heavier lifting, right? Because BFR could be a bridge towards that. And there's also unique properties of BFR that we're, we're really just beginning to understand like the hypoalgesic response or pain relieving response from the application of BFR. So there's a lot of cool avenues and, and, and not even, here's another one. We, we, we traditionally think that, um, that the increases in tendon physical properties like stiffness, for example, we can only change with heavy loads, moderate to heavy loads of 70 plus percent. And we have a lot of research on this. And so when I used to initially teach BFR as of literally last year, I always say, hey, listen, it's great to know when to use BFR, right? The indications, but it's also great to, great to know when not to use BFR. And tendinopathies have been one such hot topic in the BFR world because, um, because of the fact that people are like, all right, well, why can't I just throw BFR? It seems like magic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And me, I'm always like, listen, we have hundreds of studies that show that low loads by themselves do not induce any sort of physical and mechanical changes in the properties of the tendon. Now, we know treat the donut analogy, right? So just get that out of the window, all right? I understand that. We get it. Um, but... The, from what our understanding of in terms of just the physical properties of increasing tendon stiffness, we need heavy, moderate to heavy loads. So I always taught, I always taught that, listen, and we have evidence from, from Kubo back in 2006, which looked at the patellar tendon, that really it might not be an optimal approach. Well, Sentner last year, uh, Christoph Sentner, I just love saying Christoph, 
uh, because it's a great name. Um, his lab is in, I believe, Germany. Um, looked at the Achilles tendon adaptations with a 20 to 35% load in uh, uh, BFR versus 70 to 85% load uh, in seated and standing calf raises uh, using, I think it was 50% pressure over 14 weeks and showed that actually low load BFR induced similar changes in tendon stiff in the physical properties of the tendon than heavy loads, which completely blows our mind because now the addition of ischemia is inducing some novel changes in the tendon, which is opening up not only a new avenue of BFR research, right? Because anecdotally, a lot of clinicians across the country and across Europe that I'm teaching are, are using BFR with tendinopathies anyways, because, you know, whatever. They're going to, even though I'm saying don't do it, you know, people are going to do what people are going to do, which is fine, um, as long as you're safe about it. Uh, but they're saying, yeah, we're getting amazing results with longstanding chronic tendinopathies, with acute tendinopathies, and, and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, okay, analgesic, analgesic, analgesic. Okay, that makes sense because we have evidence on, on, on that um, you know, from, from Giles and, and Hughes and all these other authors. But now it's opening up this avenue of, wow, we need to actually look at our understanding of physiology in general, like tendon physiology, because it, it might not be that the, the fibroblasts obviously are responding to the, this, this certain level of mechanical load through the tendon. But now this hypoxia is, is kind of now challenging our understanding of, of this model of tendon adaptation. So it's kind of exciting and it's kind of scary at the same time because you're like, I, I always teach, listen, BFR is firmly rooted in exercise science. In fact, in every single course that I teach, we always spend time talking about the exercise science of strength training in general, because a lot that's a disconnect in the rehabilitation world, because everyone's like always afraid of exerting our patients. And in fact, the only way to actually get adaptation is we need to get our patients to a certain level of exertion before any positive adaptations happen. So if we're afraid of exerting our patients, what the hell are we doing in rehab? We're doing nothing. We are just making time pass. I talk to so many clinicians. They're like, oh yeah, well, what if they come back and they're in more pain? Or what if we're causing pain? I tell them to stop. It's like, listen, you have to understand the adaptation process is a process, but it's a process that revolves around a level of exertion. If you don't exert yourself, what are you doing? We're just doing the bells and whistles. Oh, the massage, all that other crap. You know, that's fine and dandy, right? We can use that as an adjunctive therapy, but ultimately we need to be building our patients up. We need to be building muscle mass. We need to be building strength because we have so much evidence to suggest that both of those qualities, along with aerobic capacity, which is just, I like to push that out a little bit on the side, but we have so much evidence to suggest that if we lose these qualities, then we, we now reduce the quality of life of our patients. And going back to my mission of trying to make this world a happier and healthier place to be, that just completely kiboshes my mission and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so it's a really important, um, it's a really important uh, perspective that I try to hammer away when I communicate about this stuff because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how we grow and how we adapt in the first place. And that goes back to, okay, well then how does BFR work? Well, 
exactly how BFR works is exactly how normal strength training works for the most part, right? There are some certain caveats there, but in, in general, adaptation of strength training happens the same with low loads as it does with low loads of BFR, as it does with moderate loads, as it does with heavy loads. We need to exert ourselves. So that's me and my soapbox. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, I have, uh, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Because um, obviously there was, there was a ton there, but something I was curious if you could potentially answer just based off of your knowledge about the subject is like if I take two people who have the same um, starting point, uh, based off what you know, are those, so if one person uses blood flow restriction, one person just goes about it normally, is it likely that the person with blood flow restriction will be lifting heavier loads earlier? So that's a, that's a, that's a good question. I, I would say there's a lot of caveats to that because you can't, everyone is different, right? But what I will tell you from what we understand is that if you compare the absolute results uh, of a strength training program in all the, in different individuals that are lifting heavy versus they're lifting light, they tend to be similar. Okay. But what the, which, which again, which continues to highlight that BFR fits well within our, our normal understanding of exercise science and adaptation. There is evidence to suggest that acutely, and this is, um, who is this author? Teixeira. Um, I just know one of the authors because uh, one of my uh, one of my mentors, Brad Schoenfeld, um, he he was on this paper um, looking at the absolute differences between a session by session basis of increasing muscle hypertrophy and strength. Um, BFR uh, when when it's done on a session to session basis, actually high intensity training outperforms low intensity training with BFR on a session to session basis. Um, because it's just, there's more mechanical tension. If you exert yourself, you're still going to have high levels of metabolite accumulation. There's still all these other factors that happen with higher mechanical tension. But when you go on a session by session basis with low, low BFR, and you can train a little bit more frequently, you can put on a little bit more size quicker than what you would do in the same session. Like if you'd say, if you're all right, if I'm going to lift one session or two sessions a week with a high intensity training, I can lift four sessions a week with BFR over the long haul. When you compare a session to session basis, high intensity training is going to win. And that's why ultimately we need to get to high intensity training. Low intensity training can help with reducing load of, of a potential post-surgical site, for example, but also has higher analgesic effects. Um, and that was a recent study by Hughes that kind of actually looked at uh, what are the potential effects of added pressure to, to not only local, but systemic uh, hypoalgesia. So that's a new fascinating area of research um, that ultimately I want to help uh, elucidate that uh, when I eventually go back to get my PhD. But um, this, this whole process of they're probably going to end up in the same place. I would not... I would not suggest that the use of BFR in a six to 12 month program is going to outperform somebody that's just using high load training. In fact, I would probably recommend that if you were going to pick one or the other, I would pick high load training. However, that's not practical 
for a lot of people in the early stages of rehab. So where BFR can accelerate performance and recovery is getting that person in a better place to lift heavy with less symptomatology associated with that. Meaning, for example, if that person is an ACL reconstruction, if we can get BFR early and we know the power of ischemia, we can prevent some of that quadriceps atrophy, right? That can help them walk better, have a little bit less pain in their daily life because we know that at least with BFR, we can have at least a 24 hour um, hypoalgesic effect. So that can help shape our early rehab. Are they ultimately gonna end up in the same place? Probably, right? But, but again, it's about quality of life and about making people happier and healthier at the same time. So if we can use BFR safely, which by all, by all accounts, acute use of BFR up to at least 12, 12 to 16 weeks has been well tolerated, uh, especially with a good medical screen, which is something that's really important. Why not? So, uh, and another thing that's interesting that the research is kind of parceling out now, which is again, fascinating, is that BFR can induce some mechanical changes uh, at the muscle in terms of uh, pination angle, uh, in terms of cross-sectional area. But when you talk about detraining, so when you start an exercise program and then when you stop it, high-intensity training outperforms BFR, likely because the absolute mechanical load at the muscle is going to facilitate greater long-term retention of the muscle mass versus something where we talk about and we, we, we differentiate between the muscle fiber mechanical tension and the whole muscle mechanical tension. Whole muscle mechanical tension and muscle fiber mechanical tension are high with heavy lifting. This is the force velocity relationship right? Whereby the, 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 the fundamental assumptions of the force velocity relationship are that when you're trying to shorten your muscle and you're using maximum effort with heavy loads, you can't move that quick. And so when you can't move that quick, high amounts of muscle force are generated per muscle fiber, which is a potent stimulation for muscle protein synthesis and thus hypertrophy. When you're using light loads, you can move pretty quickly, right? until you reach that level of exertion and fatigue, whereby you can't move that quickly, right? You, you get tired, you end up in the same spot, no matter if you lift light, moderate or heavy loads with or without BFR, right? You, you end up in the same spot. But the difference with light loads and light to moderate loads is that the whole muscle mechanical tension is pretty low. So you're not really stimulating any sort of uh, tendon. You're not really stimulating a lot of the, 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 the amount of architectural changes like fascicle length, things like that, that are observed with heavy load training. You don't get that with light load training. So it's, it, it really just is looking at, all right, well, where can BFR then fit? Well, it's perfect. It fits as a bridge. It fits as a bridge in the early to moderate stages of rehab to get people who can lift heavy to lift heavy again. I mean, and, and for those athletes or those individuals that are looking for an additional boost, because we're saying, again, I'm, I'm biased more toward the rehab side, but I, under, I understand now, and we're getting more and more research. It's coming out at an exponential rate. It's getting very difficult to stay on top of the literature base um, because more research is coming out literally every day. I mean, just today, there was a paper that was published that was looking at bench press and, and, and three, rep, three reps improving bench press power, right? I haven't read it yet, but just knowing that there are, are potential implications that we're still trying to understand from a performance perspective. But right now, from a rehab perspective, 
it's best served as a bridge um, to that. And to answer your question again, it's just, they're going to end up in the same spot. It's just, how is that quality of life different? And that's where I think we need to do a research study on is looking at the, the quality of life. And I think there is one, there might be one out there, um, but really looking at the differences on a short to moderate to long term, where it's like, listen, like the quality of life from week zero to four is going to be, I would imagine would be higher than the quality of life for individuals that are, that are lifting heavy. And even though they might end up in the same place, it's the process is a little bit more enjoyable overall for the, for the BFR group because they have less joint stress. And again, this is population specific, right? NEOA is a great population that, that would be to do this on. And we do have some literature on knee osteoarthritis, but just, just to plot that out, because that's a common question that gets asked. If, I, if I'm at the same spot in weeks, you know, in, in, in six months, well, you know, why does it matter? And to a degree, I, I, I agree. But we're not seeing the whole picture here. We're still seeing, we're, we're seeing two points from pre to post and then the passage of time, but we're not really looking at the quality of that time. So that's kind of my, my thoughts. Like trust of the therapist, psychological uh, characteristic, motivation, like dropout rate, uh, all those things I feel like could, could influence like, yeah, just that relationship and, and overall, like the experience, you know, being more positive. Yeah. So for example, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, since we're on Neo a, um, there, there is, um, there is a, there's one study, there's actually two studies, but, but one study that I'll talk about, which kind of highlights some of the clinical and practical relevancy uh, and challenges of what we experience in, on a day-to-day basis with the with the disconnect between the traditionally recommended 70 plus percent of the one rep max and the low load training that's commonly performed in rehab. Um, Faraz in 2018 looked at comparing the uh, muscle mass, strength, and function functional outcomes in uh, individuals with knee osteoarthritis. And what they found was that low, low blood flow restriction uh, performed, I think it was a 30% of the 1RM compared to 80% of the 1RM um, was, gave similar levels of muscle mass and strength as well as function in turn. Cause that's, we also, we also were not even talking about that actual perceived function, which is quality of life, right? But actual function as well um, showed similar benefits uh, to, to both groups. But 25% of the high intensity training group dropped out of the study because of knee pain. And thus, that is something where, yeah, traditional, traditionally recommended high intensity training is great. And that's something that's, that, that, that's a goal that we should, we as practitioners should always be be striving towards but is that actually practically uh relevant for us Uh, i'll give you an example i'll give you a personal example my mom has uh, hip osteoarthritis she she is well aware of my position my beliefs and everything and we are trying to get her on an exercise program um, because we know that moderate to heavy lifting 
is going to be protective uh, of, of disease progression, or at least pre preventing the, the rate of decline. Um, we know that in knee osteoarthritis, uh, for example, that quadricep strength is one of those indicators of, of how far along you are in the disease process. And we want to strengthen the quads. So, so I would imagine similar process in the hip. I'm not as well versed in, in the hip uh, OA literature. But we try to get her on, on something called the K-Box, which is iso-inertial resistance. Um, it's a great resistance training tool. Um, and, and so we've been using it in quarantine. And so we got her on a very light squat, um, calf raise, you know, whatever. And, and again, this is light loads. But, but what ended up happening? Two days later, she was, she was lying in bed or lying in the couch, needed to take medication, and was icing her hip the whole day. That's traditionally recommended strength training. And what ended up happening is you end up getting a situation where you take one step forward, which is, oh, you got a little bit stronger, but then you're taking two steps back. And then all of a sudden she's like, oh, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Like the pain or whatever. And she's my mom and she knows, you know, what I talk about on a daily basis. So you can imagine and you transition that to the population at large. And you see that, wow, like heavy lifting is recommended, but yeah, we're, we're taking one step, one step forward to take two steps back. And so we get people not excited about exercise because, oh man, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to be bedridden. I'm, I'm not going to be able to walk the next day. That's not a good thing. And so where BFR can come in is provide that low load, low joint stress for those individuals, challenge the musculature to help them get stronger, put on some muscle mass, which we already know that NEOA is not just because, you know, the joint is incongruent, right? We know that there is a low level chronic systemic inflammatory problem there. I mean, that's where the newer literature is going. And so muscle mass plays a very important role in modulating. It all comes back to muscle, which is why I harp on this more so than probably any other person that talks about BFR, because it all comes back to muscle. If we get more muscle, what is that going to do? That's going to get us increases in bone density, right? What is that going to do for our function? It's going to improve our function. Everything goes back to muscle. So the narrative for me on blood flow restriction is we need to get, we need muscle hypertrophy. We don't need muscle hypertrophy like a bodybuilder. We need muscle hypertrophy like a, if we can put on 5% muscle mass, in four to six weeks, we know that that 5% now is going to be working for us, not against us. What works against us is atrophy. That works against everything that we're doing. So it's important to communicate that to our, our clients and patients. And, and then that's why we also go into the nutritional piece, right? And looking at, it's not just exercise, great, ultimately, but anabolic resistance is the resistance of nutrition, particularly amino acids. And muscle protein synthesis, right? So what we need to do is we need to provide an environment where we're, we're creating an additive environment. So it's not just, it's not just, oh, we exercise. That's great. But what, what's going on on the other end, right? What's going on on the, the 23 and uh, 23 hours or 23 and a half hours that we're not seeing you? What are you doing? What are you eating? What are you doing? Because we know that our body needs fuel. It needs energy. And what kind of energy are we putting into the system? That's also important. So that's another piece of the narrative. Yeah, there's it's it's interesting to listen to you talk because there's so many there's so many factors that go into it, and and I like how you said it always comes back to the muscle. How, 
like hashtag chase the pump, obviously. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to ask you though, was, um, I heard you say this on another podcast. You were talking about how anyone can kind of go and do BFR and you can't say that if someone just go and goes to the gym and straps something on there and starts, you know, working out that they're not going to get the benefit from it. But you mentioned as healthcare professionals, we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard and have an objective way to measure and, and make sure that we're implementing it in the most efficient way. So I'd really like to hear you kind of dive into maybe some of the, the parameters in terms of like, you know, how we're applying the cuff, um, the numbers of reps and sets and like those type of parameters as well as um, like how often, et cetera. Yeah. So that's a huge question. <laughs> um, so let's, let's at least first start out with the, the, the elephant in the room. All right. The elephant in the room is, is can you tie a knee wrap or uh, whatever straps around your arm and exercise and gain a benefit for muscle mass and strength? Absolutely. Why? Because you're driving the ischemic response. You're then reducing oxygen and you're doing that in such a way that you're going to you're going to accelerate the fatigue response and thus you're going to you're going to get the early recruitment of the type 2 muscle fibers that's from a hypertrophy perspective we also know that i and and something that i'm just going to lay out there just so we we have an understanding is that ischemic training can also improve muscle glycogen stores. It also can improve capillarization. It can also improve mitochondrial biogenesis. It can also improve a lot of these other factors that can aid in, uh, in, in systemic health, not just of the local muscle tissue, right? So ischemia is driving that. So it doesn't matter what you're doing, right? You can tie something around your arm and, 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 and be fine. But it's my firm belief <clears throat> that as healthcare providers, we're held to a higher standard. We have to be, right? We're better than that. Um, and particularly um, the, or the research on practical, what we call practical BFR, which is just that, tying something around your arm or leg and exercising, um, is done on very healthy individuals, right? College age students, um, very, you know, high school students even. Um, we have literature on that. And it's effective, right? Duh. If you understand the mechanisms, you're going to understand why practical BFR is effective. But we do know this. When you exercise to complete volitional failure, meaning you can't do another repetition, it doesn't matter what you use. It doesn't matter if you have five millimeters of mercury of pressure, 100, 200, you know, 300 mercuries of pressure. The outcomes are going to tend to be the same between low load training, low load training with BFR moderate training and heavy load training in terms of hypertrophy. The strength literature is kind of a little bit across the board, but whatever. If we're sticking with muscle mass, that's what we'll stick with. All right. But when you're not exercising to failure, which is very typical of a clinical population, right? We're not going to put our patients to exercise to failure on day one. There's a lot of, there, there's some concerns that have been brought about uh, by, by one of the researchers, uh, Matthias Wurmbaum, um, who's been a researcher on BFR now for 14, 15 years, um, who raises the concern about producing excessive muscle damage with initial application of BFR. So we spent some time talking about that as well on some of the courses, et cetera, whatever. But there is a concern there uh, for, for muscle damage. And I totally agree. Um, so when we're looking at the, 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 the repetitions that we're commonly prescribing in rehab, right, which, which tends to be, uh, in the research all, all across the board, which I'll get to that in, in a second. If we don't hit that failure response, then we need to have a certain degree of ischemia, 
a minimum threshold in order to know for a fact that we are changing the local metabolic environment of the tissue. And in doing so, we are know for a fact that we are accelerating fatigue relative to a low load work matched control. Meaning that if I, I need a certain amount of pressure to be able to change the environment such that the environment is actually like, oh crap, like I'm actually reducing the oxygen availability and thus I'm going to gain an actual benefit, a therapeutic benefit from the exercise. The, the, the research that has been done on, on, on practical BFR, we know that that doesn't happen. We know that we can't actually uh, arbitrarily say this pressure, which is set to quote unquote, a seven out of 10 tightness. There is literature uh, out of Lenicky's lab. Uh, it's Bell 2019, if anybody's interested. Um, that shows that in three consecutive days, when we have individuals, both men and women, um, rate the perceived application of pressure, seven out of 10, that that pressure is over or underestimated in the upper and lower extremities by up to 25%. Meaning that we can have individuals that are exercising under full occlusion, or we can have exercise, individuals exercising where they're not actually gaining that much of an effect. So we need a way to standardize that pressure. And the, the, the problem with the earlier literature is that the Japanese are doing something different than the Brazilians, the Americans are doing something different than the Brazilians and the Japanese, the Europeans and the Norwegians are doing something different. And so we're getting this problem where we're seeing that BFR has been beneficial, right? But we don't know the magnitude of the effects of the intervention because they're doing something all different. They're doing different sets. They're doing different reps. They're doing different pressures. They're using different cuffs. These are all different variables that, that can influence the magnitude of the ischemic effect on the tissue. So what we're trying to do now moving forward is we're setting up a standardization. So we can now compare apples to apples instead of apples to oranges, because you know, both of them are fruit, but an apple is not an orange and an orange is not an apple. So when we're trying to compare what the effect of this intervention, the orange versus this intervention, the apple, it, we're like, uh, other than their fruit and you know, they're delicious. At least I think they're delicious. Um, that's it. And so we're seeing now in the literature that when, when we're looking at some of these, these, these applications that it's hard to, to derive an effect. So the newer, the newer guidelines um, that have been coming out are using something called limb occlusion pressure, which basically it is taking the, for, for lack of better terminology, it's using your blood pressure, but it's not your blood pressure because your blood pressure is standardized to a particular cuff width and material, right? It's, you, it's basically taking the amount of pressure needed to completely occlude your arterial flow and occlude your venous flow. And then we exercise at a percentage of that, such that we know now that the relative intensity of the exercise that's being performed is the same between me as it would be between you and you, right? Or anybody, because we know that that pressure is set to the individual. The earlier BFR research is using arbitrary pressures, something like I'm going to apply 100 millimeters of mercury to everyone's arm and 220 millimeters of mercury to everyone's leg. Well, if I have massive legs and, and I, you have small legs, I don't know if you have small legs, but you know, hopefully, probably not hopefully, as big you know, as yours. You, hopefully, hopefully you, you, you lift legs. <laughs> um, 
but then the, the magnitude of the ischemic stress is different. And thus, when you're analyzing the data from an acute perspective, but also from a chronic perspective, you're going to get a different magnitude of effects. And so it's impossible to understand from a study-to-study basis what's, what the, 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 the relative effect of BFR is. So what limb occlusion pressure does is it provides a standardization in the research, right? Because now we can compare apples to apples instead of apples to oranges. But it also allows us as clinicians to understand what the relative intensity of the exercise that we're doing with our patients. Because from a hypertrophy perspective, it doesn't appear that pressure plays a large role in the magnitude of responses as long as we have a certain amount of pressure. And this is, this is talking about when we're not exercising to failure, right? It appears that we need a minimum of 40% of the limb occlusion pressure in the arms and a minimum of 50 to 60% in the legs in order to elicit hypertrophy in non-failure BFR routines. Um, again, failure goes out the window, right? You don't, the pressure doesn't matter because you're, you're, you're exerting yourself uh, maximally. But we're not going to have our patients do that. And thus, now there's two different protocols that have been adopted in the research base. Number one is doing 30 repetitions on the first set, followed by a 30-second rest period, and then three sets of 15 repetitions, each with 30 seconds of repetition. So you're doing 75, 75 total repetitions at anywhere from a 20 to a 40% of the one rep max. Now, in the recent paper, I wrote 50% because that was also in healthy individuals, and we have evidence to suggest that above 50% the intramuscular pressure, which is another variable that people don't really, can't really conceptualize, but basically it's when we contract our muscle to a certain extent, we get full occlusion to that muscle. We create ischemia. We can do isometric exercise and get the effects of BFR without the application of the cuff, because as long as the muscle itself is ischemic, that's getting and it's under under experiencing mechanical tension which is a result of of in our in our case effort right trying to contract and squeeze that muscle we're going to create some of those benefits of bfr but the benefits of bfr is not during the exercise the actual concentric contraction it's actually in my opinion during the rest period such that when we're resting we are restricting blood flow to the limb and thus, what we're trying to do is make sure that we're not exercising our patients under situations where there's full occlusion. So when they're resting, they're not, they're, they're not completely occluding the blood flow to the, to, the exercising, uh, to the exercising limb. And that's the importance of LOP. So, so therefore, we need to use a, a way that, that's standard that's standardized um, to use an arbitrary measure of pressure or to do something like, Oh, seven out of 10. Well, you know, how many of you have woken up and hung over and life is just, just sucks. Um, and then your, your perception of your reality is completely different on that day versus something where you got nine or 10 hours of sleep. You're ready to go. You're, you know, it's completely different. So to use a subjective measure in replacement for an objective measure like uh, pressure it makes no sense to me, even though, again, it works. It's just not something that I would recommend for uh, clinicians that are working with individuals with comorbidities. Because as, as, as I mentioned briefly before, there are metabolic 
cardiovascular, hemodynamic, and systemic changes that happen with comorbidities like obesity, diabetes, hypertension, um, heart failure. These are all things that we see in our clinical practices that we need to consider uh, when we're uh, applying the, the, any sort of exercise prescription, but most likely exercise prescription with BFR when we're challenging our patients. So I, I don't know if that answered some of your questions. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. And um, I think, yeah, I think it does because it's important to, to know those, those numbers when we're applying it so that it's consistent across the board. Um, and so that mm-hmm. you're, you're using it appropriately in the rehab setting, which I think is important. And I'm, I'm curious to hear, um, you know, how do you go about introducing this to someone who may like one of your clients that may have never experienced it before? Um, how do you go about introducing that to them and, and starting them off with that? Yeah. So what we know in the literature is, is that there is a stepwise progression for intensity. And as of like two, two and a half years ago, I've kind of called these arbitrarily the pillars of BFR. Um, the pillars of BFR are, are, are designed to be a stepwise progression in intensity to get individuals comfortable, uh, <laughs> comfortable with the stress of BFR without overwhelming their system. So typically when I have an individual that is, is completely inactive, completely sedentary, what I want to, what I want them to do is just get comfortable with the feeling of a pump, right? So how does that happen? I can just apply the, the, the cuff itself and be able to create this self swelling effect that <clears throat> will be beneficial, at least in the short term, because it's better than doing nothing, um, but allows them to experience some degree of hypoxia right? Not much, really not anything super significant, but some degree of hypoxia to, um, and, and, a, and a pump effect, which will allow them to say, oh man, okay. And they can see the pump effect. That's even, that's even the better part. And then saying, okay, you can handle that. Then progress them as quickly as possible to pillar two, which is aerobic training and pillar two aerobic training. Now you're adding, um, some degree of muscle contraction, which is a low level of muscle activation but you're not increasing any significant metabolite accumulation. So when we talk about effort, yeah, it's, it's a little bit more taxing, but discomfort tends to not be too terribly high uh, in general, just because there's not a lot of metabolite accumulation. That metabolite accumulation is going to drive a lot of the discomfort and the pain um, with BFR extra resistance training. Once I get them comfortable with the aerobic training, um, in a textbook scenario, right? Some people can go immediately to, to pillar two. Some people like my bodybuilders that I work with go immediately to pillar three, which is resistance training. Resistance training is the one that's very strenuous. That's very taxing. That is like, uh, uh, can be very overwhelming for some cer- certain people. So you just like in the physical therapy, what we say, uh, all over, uh, our clinics and social media, it depends, right? It depends on the person in front of you. It's physical therapy is just as much a science as it is an art. So it's up to you, the clinician to understand the complexities of the different progressions within blood flow restriction to properly prescribe, uh, the, the dosage to your patient. And then pillar four is something that is kind of return to sport. It's other kind of applications that, um, that are, are fringe supported in the research um, that have some potential application. But in general, um, <clears throat> you know, we stick with pillars one, two, and three uh, with, our, with our progression there. So it really, ultimately, my goal and 
the goals of all the clinicians that I teach is we want to make people excited about exercise. I, I, the best feeling that I get is when I work with somebody that's an older middle-aged person that, that is like tired of regular exercise that just hurts and all that stuff. And then we can put blood flow restriction on them. And then all of a sudden they're getting pain relief and they're starting to see results and they're not getting that reactive joint pain uh, one to three days after exercise and they're getting addicted to, to it. And again, that's just continuing to fulfill my mission of making this world a happier and healthier place to be and getting them back to their lives, right? Like how many people that you, that you work with that are just like, I can't do this. I can't do that because my knee, yada, yada, yada. And all of a sudden now you're building some muscle and what's happening. Oh, that anti-inflammatory effects of the muscle, everything else you're, you're, you're trying to work with them on, 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 on at least providing some, some generalized guidance on nutrition. And all of a sudden you're creating this package and BFR is a centerpiece of that package. And then your, your goals are to get them off the BFR at some point, maybe get them back to heavier lifting if they can. If not, utilize BFR strategically. And now all of a sudden you've helped them reclaim their life back. There's nothing more rewarding in, that, in this whole rehab process than that. Um, then, and that's why it's so fulfilling to do, to, to, to do, I don't even think I have a job. I mean, I, I really don't. I mean, I love going to work every day, helping people reclaim their lives and utilizing a technology and modality that really I think can, can change the world. So that's kind of how I prescribe the exercise. It really just depends on who is in front of you, but understanding that on top of all of these different applications, there are different demands on the musculoskeletal system and things that you need to consider when with your application. Yeah, no, totally. And, and obviously it's something that you're very passionate about and there's a lot of nuance to it. And I know that you cover that in, in your courses. So maybe you could just let people know, like, obviously right now the situation's probably a little different, but maybe like what the future is with your courses or, you know, maybe a little bit about the course if they're interested in looking into it and where they can find that information just to wrap up. Yeah. So we, we do, so we have two things. So we have live courses that we do uh, across the, the U S uh, and Europe in particular uh, through Kinesport and uh, Nova Via. And um, we would lo- I would love to be able to get to Canada at some point uh, to come back and, and give a, a live in-person workshop. And uh, we have a couple courses still scheduled in the U S I don't know if they're going to happen or not. Um, but generally speaking, um, the next best bet is if people are interested in the material, uh, we're working hard and I mean very hard behind the scenes right now. Um, we're launching our online BFR course, uh, this summer, uh, July 1st is our tentative date. It is a serious course. It is not some course that you're going to take in one afternoon and you're going to be like, I'm good. This course is the going to be the definitive guide to blood flow restriction application. And again, I don't have any bias other than to get the science out there and make sure BFR continues to grow. So I am not holding back. I am I am giving you almost everything. Not not everything because you can't you can't do that as an educator. You can't teach everything, but. But you, I teach a vast majority of the research, my methodologies, my beliefs uh, from practical experience and the research, obviously, because that's, that's what ha- everything has to be involved in is research-based, um, where it's, it's going to be a 12-hour course. Um, so basically, we're, we're, we're going to be recording at least eight hours of video. Um, very high production value. So it's not just looking at slides. We're going to, we're breaking down 
concepts using animations. If you check my Instagram, you can see kind of some of the direction that we're headed um, in terms of breaking down the concepts and understanding what it is. Cause it's really important to understand how your, how BFR works because then that allows you to communicate it to the physicians. We didn't really talk about BFR having a terrible name and all the barriers that exist with widespread implementation. Um, but it, it really, it, it's important if you understand the concepts and you understand how to, how to then say, okay, what is your elevator pitch? These are all things that, that can help uh, with understanding. And then that can help you grow your practice in your business because BFR now is getting to the point where physicians are actually requesting BFR in practice. So this course is going to go through everything. It's going to be 15 modules and it's um, going to have everything from, you know, the, the major heavy hitters of populations that you could work with, how, what the research says, what are practical guide, ways to in, integrate it. And then there's nine assigned readings. So there's 94 pages of reading material. It's like, it's like a graduate level course. And then there's 148 quiz, quiz questions. Um, so I don't hold back because it's really important as, uh, as somebody who, who believes in BFR, who contributes to the literature base, who is going to be running uh, research and also at some point getting a PhD in blood flow restriction, that we continue to get the information out there in an unbiased approach, but in the lens of a physical therapist. I'm a, I'm a clinician first and foremost. Um, so uh, I have my doctor of physical therapy from Columbia. And so everything is about safety and it's about uh, uh, making sure that we can improve rehab. So that's the lens of this, this course. And so it's going to be translated into, I, we signed a, an exclusive distribution agreement with, uh, with valve performance, which is, uh, which, which is going to also distribute our, our, our non-English uh, courses. So it's going to be in all different languages. It's going to be, so we're very excited for that. Um, it's going to launch in July and it's going to be affordable. Um, we we're, we're working through right now what, what the pricing options are, but our goal is to make BFR, uh, learning accessible from a, a content perspective, but also from a price perspective. Cause we know that that's, that's a barrier, uh, for, for some people. So that's kind of a, what's, what's been going on in the background for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's exciting. I'm, I'm pumped to hear that that's going to happen and yeah, definitely give us a heads up when, when you are going to put it out and we can try and support you guys, um, any way we can. And, um, I just, yeah, I just appreciate you taking the time, like sitting here and just listening to obviously the commitment you've made to understanding this topic and in the passion you have behind it, um, has led you to where you are now. And, and I'm excited for you to continue to develop and put that out, um, to other clinicians. Cause I do think it's a valuable uh, modality that we need to very much take a hand on and, and put it into practice across the board for physical therapists in the, in the healthcare field. So it's awesome. Um, I just want you to leave maybe your Instagram or where people can contact you if they have any questions or want to reach out to you. Um, so yeah, you can, you can find my website is, uh, the bfrpros.com. Uh, we also are going to have our workshop on bfrtraining.com. So we secured that Earl and then my Instagram, which honestly I can say is the most comprehensive, uh, one-stop resource, uh, at least for, for certain topics within blood flow restriction on the internet. And that's just at the HPM. So the human performance mechanic just shortened. And, uh, obviously the BFR pros has, uh, some of the, the, the BFR pro specific stuff, but 
Yeah. I mean, we, we also have a Facebook group as well, uh, BFR Accelerated Performance Recovery, where we have, uh, I think it's like 1,700 clinicians across the world uh, that we all bounce ideas back off of and just keep everyone abreast of the research because that's really what we should be rooting our practice in is, is research. So I'm, I'm, I take my, my position very seriously uh, as, as a, somebody who is passionate about BFR but truly believes that it can change lives. But at the same time, understand what we know we don't know and what we don't know that we don't know. So that's, that's another thing that's really important as well. So it's, it's always taking a conservative approach, um, but understanding that, you know, this is a technology that's not going anywhere. It's, it's not going. Anywhere. In fact, it's actually becoming easier to access. Like just, la- just, just a couple of days ago, there was a study published using a pulse ox to be able to determine uh, appropriate pressures in the upper extremity, which again, reduces the barrier for, um, for safe BFR practice. So it, 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 it's just exploding. And I'm, I'm, I'm super really thankful for a platform like this from you guys to just talk about BFR and hopefully spark some interest in anybody that might be interested in BFR uh, from either a research perspective or a practical clinician perspective to, to integrate this, this into their practice. Totally. Yeah. Thanks again, Nick, for taking the time and, and hopping on with us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you guys, appreciate it.